Well, we are uh, delighted and honored uh, this morning to have uh, Pastor Erwin Ince in our midst. Uh, he's going to be bringing the word to us. He's the pastor of City of Hope Church in Columbia, Maryland. Uh, he grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, he's married to uh, Kim, and he has four children. And uh, he uh, was originally uh, studied electrical engineering. He was a systems engineer for Motorola for many years. Uh, and then God called him into the ministry. Uh, he became a church planter and planted the uh, City of Hope. And uh, he kept going to seminary uh, after Reformed Theological Seminary. And he went to Covenant Theological Seminary. Uh, and received his uh, doctor of ministry, uh, which was a focus on uh, uh, identity formation within the context of ethnically uh, diverse churches. Uh, and so he's very passionate for ministry of reconciliation, uh, very much shares the, the mission, vision, values of faith. And so uh, we have kindred uh, spirits in that. Uh, he's also a, uh, a CrossFit enthusiast. And uh, so he's, he's, a, he's a brother that works out, uh, both soul and body. Uh, I'm sitting here, by the way, I'm sitting here, and this is the first time I saw a teaching elder with uh, the Hebrew Bible. He's got a Bible that is both Hebrew and Greek, and he's sitting there reading it as the scriptures are being read in English. Uh, he uh, has been part of our ministry of uh, seminary training with LAMP, uh, which is our, the seminary that we host here at Faith, and he uh, also teaches Hebrew and Greek. Um, I could say many more things about this brother, uh, but uh, mainly that he loves Jesus, and he's a good friend, and I'd like to welcome Erwin Inns to the pulpit. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. Good morning, Faith Christian Fellowship. Uh, I was about to come up here and say that I was embarrassed by that introduction until Pastor Craig said, I love Jesus. Uh, that uh, said all things right. And so that is true. By the grace of God, I do love our Savior. And anything that, any of those accolades and things that I, that he's said about me are all done uh, out of that love and that call of his to serve in the ministry that he's given to me. I will make one correction, though, in what Pastor Craig said. He said I was a CrossFit enthusiast. I am a CrossFit addict. Okay, there's a difference between enthusiasm and addiction. I am well addicted to, uh, to CrossFit. I will, can I show you the little things, scars on my thumbs and shins and all. Anyway, uh, God is good, <laughs> even in that. Uh, I am a friend of Faith Christian Fellowship. I have been uh, counseled and mentored and given a great deal of guidance by your pastors, Craig and Stan, uh, for over a decade now. They have been friends of mine and people to whom I turn for, uh, for wisdom uh, indeed. And so I am grateful for the privilege uh, to be here before you this morning. 
message this morning is going to come out of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, which is this chapter of kingdom parables that Jesus gives to the crowds and then explains to his disciples. And um, this morning we'll be looking at the parable of the weeds and the wheat from Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and then verses 36 to 43 which is the explanation, and sermon title is The Messy Kingdom Mixture. The Messy Kingdom Mixture. And I'm going to say a lot of words this morning, but here's the point of everything that I'm going to say to you in this message. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. It is that faithful faith in Jesus Christ, rather, requires patient endurance because until Jesus returns to set all things right, his kingdom will be a mixture of belief and unbelief. Faith in Jesus Christ requires patient endurance because until he returns to set everything right, there will be a mixture of belief and unbelief in his kingdom. Look with me at Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24 and reading through verse 30 and then uh, verses 36 through 43. God's word. He, that is Jesus, put another parable, bef- parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36, and he left the crowds and went into his house, and his disciples came to him, saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by thy power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in thine. Draw me nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where you have died. Draw me nearer to your precious bleeding side. So our prayer this morning, Lord. My prayer is that you would take my weak and unworthy efforts in your word and that you would use them to feed your people. That you would, by grace and mercy, the power of your spirit, and because of your love, you would meet us where we are and speak your truth into the heart of every person sitting here. Your word is not dead. It is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and we are all naked and exposed before you, the one to whom we must all give account. So do your work, Lord, as only you can. Use me, your servant, to bless your people, that we might be people who live by faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all glory and praise. Amen, amen, and amen. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963 is among the most well-known documents to come out of the civil rights era. I've been familiar with that letter for most of my life, but it was only as I became an adult that I actually paid attention to the fact that the letter was written in response to a letter that was written to him from a group of Alabama clergymen on April 12, 1963. Their letter was a joint statement expressing their concern over a series of demonstration by, demonstrations by their Negro citizens, uh, which were directed by outsiders. They wanted to strongly urge their own Negro citizens to withdraw from supporting these demonstrations and to unite, they said, uh, locally uh, in working peacefully for a better Birmingham. In their letter, they, they said, we recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized. But we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. And in reply to those concerns over the untimeliness of the demonstrations, Dr. King said, frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was quote-unquote well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This Wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long de delayed is 
justice denied. He says when you're haunted by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. I hope you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. He said, justice too long delayed is justice denied. A constant cry of the civil rights movement was, what do we want? Justice. And when do we want it? Now. Bearing under the weight of an intolerable situation for too long seems impossible. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over. But not quite the same eloquence as Dr. King, a Popeye the Sailor Man would say, that's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. We're almost 55 years removed from the writing of that letter, but we hear those words and they resonate not simply because of Dr. King's eloquence, but because We know ourselves experientially how hard it is to wait for something of immeasurable value. And I'm not talking about material things. You can't put a price on justice. And in many respects, you can't put a price on physical health. And you can't put a price on on peace of mind. And it's hard to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit called patience when when those things that we desire that are good and right are, are lacking. And yet, the nature of the kingdom of God is that there is a present reality And there is a future glory. There is, in other words, an already and there is a a not yet. And and that is something that that Jesus explains to his disciples in this parable. He explains that God calls us to live in his kingdom right now with future glory in mind. Because of this reality, people who commit their lives to following Jesus Christ will regularly look like fools in the eyes of those who don't. Our text today, Jesus focuses on the nature of God's kingdom right now in real life, and he explains it as a messy, unavoidable mixture of belief and unbelief. He knows that having to deal with evil is tiring, evil that is done by others and the evil that we still see in our own hearts that comes out of ourselves that makes you tired and impatient for things to to get better and to stay better. And yet at the very same time, he implies the necessity of patient endurance for those who would follow him. Let me Let me give you my favorite quote. I've quoted from Dr. King. Now let me quote from a Dutch theologian. Guy read in seminary seminary named Gerhardus Voss. He, He gave me the best definition of what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is not merely where God reigns supreme. Because that's always and everywhere true. For Jesus, the kingdom of God exists 
where God carries out that supremacy against all opposite forces and brings people to the willing recognition of it. Now, for Jesus, the kingdom exists when God carries out his supremacy against the forces that oppose it and brings people like you and I to the willing recognition of it. And here it is in this parable, Jesus explains how the kingdom of heaven can be present in the world while not yet wiping out all opposition. I want to talk about three things from this text. I want to talk to you this morning about one, the king, two, the enemy, and three, the kingdom. Uh, the king, the enemy, and the kingdom. And it goes without saying that every kingdom has a king. And in the kingdom of, of God, or as Matthew prefers to say it in his gospel, the kingdom of heaven, the king is God. And look at the identity of the kingdom in this parable. This chapter in Matthew's gospel is full of, of kingdom parables. And the parable we're looking at today is the second one in the chapter. And Matthew says in verse 24 that Jesus put another parable before them saying... Here's what the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. The, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. In verse 27, this man who sowed good seed in his field is called the master of the house. And when Jesus and his disciples, they go away from the crowds, and it's Jesus to his disciples, and they ask him to, to explain the, the parable to them. In, in verse 36, uh, the first thing that Jesus does in his explanation is identify who the master is. He says in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. I'm the sower of the good seed. I'm, I'm the master of the house. The, the field is the world, and the good seed that, uh, that is sown uh, is the sons of the kingdom. Not only am I the master, but the field that I am talking about is not some little plot of land here in Palestine. The, the field that I am talking about is the entire world. The field that I own is the whole world. I'm Lord. I am sovereign, not just over the church, but over the entire world. And because the world belongs to me, Jesus is declaring, I have the authority and the power to plant good seed in it. This is an obvious point. All you got to do is just read the text and you can, and I'm not giving you something like mind-blowing. It's just right there in front of us. But here's why I pointed out. Because Jesus is the king, the work that the devil is doing in this parable doesn't surprise him or discourage him. The enemy is working, and the enemy's work, if you read, it, it surprises and discourages his people. Jesus says a man sowed good seed in his field, but then in verse 25 it says, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? When the servants see the weeds appear 
with the wheat. They asked the master, where did these weeds come from? How did this happen? Do you want us to go and gather these weeds? In the explanation that Jesus gives down in verses 38 and 39, he says the weeds are, are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sold them is the devil. Even though Yah was sleeping when he did his work, I know him, and while he thinks that he's thrown me off course, the existence of the weeds and the wheat don't discourage or surprise me. It is, in fact, a part of my plan. So I will continue to plant children of the kingdom in this world until it's harvest time. At that time, he says in verse 41 to 43, the, the, the Son of Man will send, watch, his angels, right? The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whether we like it or not, Jesus is king of the world. And that means that every creature in the world, every creature in, a, in the world owes its allegiance to Jesus. Every creature in the world, every institution in the world owes its allegiance to Jesus Christ. There is nothing in this whole wide world that is irrelevant to the kingdom. There is nothing in this whole wide world that falls outside of the authority of Jesus Christ. Nothing in the world that the king doesn't care about about you, you owe your allegiance to Jesus. Your company owes its allegiance to Jesus. Our government owes its allegiance to Jesus. I know the church is not the state, and the state is not the church. They have different roles and responsibilities, but they have the same master. Jesus is king, and he's Lord over both. And you see, we're good at separating. We're good at separating our religious life from our social life, from our work life, from our community life, from our family life, from our recreational life. We try to make the realm of of faith an only private and personal matter, but Jesus doesn't give us the option of sitting on that fence. The only option to saying that he's not the king is to say he's a liar because he says he's the king. It's clear from this parable there's no middle ground. There's no, there's no need for us to live with honesty and integrity and faithfulness to operate that way if Jesus isn't king, but he is. Even so, even so, life in his kingdom is messy because of the enemy. Life in his kingdom is messy because of the enemy's work. The enemy's work doesn't surprise, like I said, Jesus in his parable, but it, but it surprises his people. And I, I know that everybody doesn't believe this truth, and there was a time in my life when I didn't believe it either. But the enemy is real. The enemy is real. This is the second kingdom parable in this chapter, and this is the second time that Jesus talks about the enemy. 
He talks about the devil in describing what the kingdom of God is like. The first parable was about the sower and the seed. And in that parable, Jesus says in verses 3 and 4 of this chapter that a sower went out to sow and some seeds fell along the path and birds came and devoured them. And when he explains that parable to his disciples, he tells them in verse number 19, when anyone hears the the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Part of the point he is making is that every time the message of the kingdom is preached, every time the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is preached, there is spiritual activity. And just like the king is actively planting good seed, the evil one is actively working to encourage unbelief by snatching the word from those who refuse to believe it. That's why he says at the end of our text, he who has ears, let him hear. And so now in this parable, the devil appears again. And this time, Jesus describes him as the enemy of all of God and all that is good. Listen, make no mistake about it. The devil is real and not in a kind of, the devil made me do it, sign away. He is actively at work encouraging hostility and wickedness in the world and in the church. And just because it might be difficult for our sophisticated American ears to believe it and to hear it, it doesn't mean it's not true. Verse 28, after the servants ask about the weeds, the master says, an enemy has done this. The word translated as enemy in the Greek text is literally two words, and the literal translation is a hostile man has done this. Pointing out that the enemy is not friendly at all. He is hostile by nature, and he seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy uh, the work of God. He is a liar, and he is a deceiver, and he tries to do his work under the cover of darkness. And Jesus, Jesus said he came at night while people were asleep and not looking, and he planted these weeds among the wheat. The reality of the enemy is not new. Began way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fell into sin. From that time forward to now, he has been at work planting weeds. In fact, the theme of the book of Genesis, you want to know what the whole book of Genesis is about? It's about this. It's about God's promise to establish his kingdom through his grace that overcomes human sin in spite of the work of the enemy. Genesis was about the kingdom of God, just like Matthew 13 is about the kingdom of God. So what Jesus says about the evil one sowing weeds in the world isn't new. Satan started sowing seeds and weeds in Genesis. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. What happens is we might miss how crafty the enemy is if we're not paying attention. Yes, he comes at night and he 
plants weeds among the wheat seeds, but this is a specific kind of weed that Jesus is talking about. The weed that he is talking about is a plant that looks like wheat as it grows. That's why the master's workers are so surprised in this parable. The weed and the wheat, they grow up together looking the same. You can't tell the difference until they begin to sprout, until they begin to bear their fruit. The wheat plants produce wheat and the weeds produce nothing. And that's why when Jesus says in verse 26 that when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared. All of a sudden it was evident. Before that, you couldn't tell the difference. The difficulty for Jesus' disciples who would not have questioned the existence of the devil was this. Now that the Messiah has come, now that Jesus, you are our Messiah, now that, that our king is here, how is it that he hasn't done away with the enemy and put an end to all evil? And Jesus' lesson in this parable is that it's not that simple. I have a plan that might not make sense to you, but it is ultimately for the benefit of my people. You see, we have the same impatience with evil, don't we? We, we want things to get better. We, we, we want things to get better soon. We see gun violence and gang violence. We see people at war and nations at war and, 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 and races uh, uh, against other races. And, and, we, and we see it and we are tired of such evidence and overt evil seeming to flourish in this world. But I want you to notice something with me. The evil that Jesus talks about here is a more subtle form of evil. He's talking not necessarily about this overt stuff we see. He's talking about weeds that look like wheat. This is not like what we read in our scripture reading in Jeremiah chapter 1 when God called Jeremiah as his prophet and his messenger and says, I'm putting my word in your mouth. And he tells Jeremiah, listen, I'm I've appointed you this day as a prophet to the nations and you're the words you're going to speak is a hard word. You're going to, to destroy and to devastate and to root out and, and to tear up. It's going to be hard and they are going to wage war against you, Jeremiah, but don't be afraid of them because I'm with you to, to deliver you. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Indeed, there are actually times when Jesus talks like that to his followers. Just flip back a few chapters in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11 when Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are you when, when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's not what he's describing here. He's talking about undercover evil. People who look like they're children of the kingdom but are not. They are really doing the enemy's work. And I said this at the 8.30 service, and, and they let me come back. 
there's a particular place in the here and now, a particular aspect in the here and now of Jesus' kingdom, a particular part of his kingdom where you see wheat and weeds growing up together, and it's the church. This would have had a piercing effect on the disciples when they go back in privately, right? Jesus gives the parable to the, to the crowds, and he speaks in parables to the crowds so that they don't really get it. And, but when he comes back to his disciples privately and they ask him about it, he wants them to understand that, yes, the field is, is the world, but... There's a particular people where you see this happening. Where people claim allegiance to Jesus but don't really have it. Indeed, if we turn to the end, toward the end of the book in chapter 25, when Jesus talks about him coming back, and he says, when I come back, I'm going to put the sheep on my right and the goats on my left. And I'm going to say to my sheep, come, you blessed of my father, enter into the joy of the kingdom prepared to you for you before uh, the foundation of the world. And I'm going to say to the ghosts on the left, depart from me, your workers of of iniquity. And And they're going to say to him, didn't we cast out demons in your name? He said, I'm going to say, away from me, I never knew you. You couldn't tell the difference between the goat and the sheep until harvest time. All right, let me just leave that there and keep moving. And when they ask him in verse 28 whether he wants them to go and gather them, the weeds, he says in verse 29, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, the the roots of the weeds would intertwine with the roots of the wheat plant underground so there couldn't be a separation until harvest time without destroying the weeds as well, the wheat as well. There will be a harvest time, but, but life in God's kingdom right now is messy, not just because of all the overt mess, but because he's allowing weeds that look like wheat to remain, and he's allowing the weeds that look like wheat to remain in his church. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would the king let the enemy plant weeds in his kingdom? And particularly, why would he let this hostile man plant in that portion of his kingdom that's supposed to be committed to him, the church? That question, why would he, why would he do that? That question is not one I generated as I was working on my sermon. That question was asked to me a few years ago when I was, uh, I was in Kinshasa, Congo uh, with the Congo Restoration Network. And I was teaching on this passage to a group 
group of, of Congolese pastors there doing a, we were doing a week of, 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 of Bible training and uh, theological, theological training. And, and, and I was talking about this passage and, and these, these brothers are, and sisters, they are ministering in a hard place where there's a great amount of poverty and injustice and unemployment. And they are trying to fight against the rise of the vile prosperity gospel in that part of the world where people are promising people health and wealth and riches if you just come to Jesus. And I'm preaching on this and talking to them about Jesus saying the wheat and the weeds are going to grow up together. And these, and these pastors are like, why would he do that? Here we are trying to work, trying to weed out the, the, uh, the, the, the unfaithful from our churches who are, who are destroying people's faith. Why would Jesus let that happen? It's a very real question. Understand this. Let's talk about this kingdom. Let's talk about this kingdom. You see, from the opening pages of the Gospel of Matthew, what you right? Your 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 sermon series through this Gospel of Matthew is the the Gospel of the Kingdom. I got the same sermon titled, The Gospel of the Kingdom. And Jesus and Matthew have been focused on the kingdom of God and its nature from the beginning. John the Baptist comes on the scene in chapter 3, and he says to the people, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Jesus is coming. Jesus comes on the scene, right? And he is, uh, he is tempted by the devil. And after his temptation, it says he comes into Galilee and he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he's, the words out of his mouth are, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in the very next chapter, chapter 5 is the first sermon in the gospel of Matthew, the sermon on the mount. And it is a kingdom sermon. And Jesus starts out by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And he is telling them, listen, listen, I'm telling you about the kingdom, but it doesn't look like what you think it ought to look like. You think that the kingdom of God means only good and glory. It will eventually, but you need to understand you have to live life in the here and now. And it's always going to be a mixy, a, a messy mixture. They missed it because they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. You remember that temptation? The last temptation that Satan gave gave to Jesus when he was in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. It says he took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said, all this I will give to you if you just bow down and worship me. What was he offering Jesus? He was offering him 
glory without trial. He was offering him glory without suffering, without persecution, without having to overcome evil, without having to go through the cross. Understand, right? we don't save anybody, but if we are joined to Jesus Christ, we take that same road. Glory comes through the trial. You have to endure through the evil to glory. His people don't get to that future Glory without the same resistance of evil by the power that he supplies. Understand, right? What does Jesus say? The harvest, he says in verse 39, is the end of the age. The harvest is the end of the age. That's the future when the end comes, right? Well, what are the very last words in the Gospel of Matthew? The Great Commission and Jesus' promise, he says to his disciples after his resurrection, and lo, I am with you always, same words, even till the end of the age. You press forward, following me, making disciples in the messy mixture of weeds and, and weed. You're not going to be able to root out all the weeds. Don't worry about it. Just know that I'm with you in the middle of it. Jesus has to explain to them and to us what the kingdom of God is like because it's not what they expected. He wanted to know how it was possible for the kingdom to have come without, at the same time not making a permanent separation between the wicked and the good. It's coming, Jesus says, that ultimate time of separation will come, I will indeed remove every cause of sin and every lawbreaker from my kingdom so those who reject me should not somehow think that they are off of the, of the hook. Those who are faking it to make it, don't, don't think you're off the hook. Harvest time is coming and justice will be applied to those who reject me and that justice is nothing short of the punishment, the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and for those who have rejected self-righteousness Righteousness for my righteousness, they will shine like the sun in the glory of, uh, of their Father. But until then, patient endurance is required because Jesus is still at work sowing good seed in his kingdom, and that is the point. The harvest time has not yet come, and it hasn't yet come. Because Jesus is still busy at work planting the gospel into the hearts of men and women, boys and girls all over the world and bringing them into the kingdom to the glory of God. And harvest time will not come until he has finished bringing every son and every daughter that he has chosen into his kingdom. So what does that mean for us? I want to leave you with two implications for us right here today. The weed and the weeds are growing together and they look alike. They couldn't tell the difference between them until they saw the fruit. It's not a popular thing to say. But the Bible always, always calls us to self-examination. 
This is the sober warning part of the text. The king, because he is God, he knows the hearts of all people and he knows those who belong to him. He knows those who are the sons of the kingdom and he knows those who are the sons of the evil one. And every person has the responsibility to examine themselves as to whether or not they are in the faith. When the Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28, he says literally, let a person examine himself. Then so let him come and, and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, Paul says, listen, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to make, meet the test. This examination is not a checklist of rules, of do's and don'ts that I am talking about. What this examination that we are called to is an examination of do I trust in Jesus Christ and, 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 and the change that he brings because of that trust. Do I see the evidence of, of faith that is demonstrated in repentance and, uh, and loving God and loving neighbor worked out in my life? Can I, all right, I'm not, or do I find in myself a stone-hard heart that refuses to repent? That even when confronted by my own issues, I refuse to repent. The Bible calls us to examine our hearts, to see and to know and listen for the purpose of having the assurance of faith, for the purpose of knowing that you belong to Jesus and he belongs to you. Second implication is the question that's posed by a commentator on this text. He says, let him take to heart the meaning of the parable, not only by being attentive, patient, hopeful, and trusting, but also by examining himself and asked, at this to ask, not only am I represented by the wheat or, or by the tares, but also have I in my impatience forgotten to let both grow together until the harvest? Or am I willing to await patiently the decision of the Son of Man at harvest time? As people and organizations and groups and governments blatantly disregard or operate in direct opposition to the word of God, Christians get angry and frustrated, and that is rightly so. I ought not to be satisfied, satisfied just to accept either my sin or the sin that I see around me, but there is a problem if I take an oh well attitude to all of the craziness of this world. It's not okay to reject Jesus Christ. It's not okay to disregard 
the law of God, but if this already and not yet nature of the kingdom of God teaches us anything, it is the reality of enduring faithfully in a world that will not acknowledge that the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but as we serve the Lord, wherever we are and however he has called us, when the actions of others offend us or when we find ourselves uh, suffering for the, the faith or being offended uh, uh, because of the faith, because the wheat and the weeds are still mixed together, we learn from this text that, listen, there is one true enemy and it's not the people who are offending us. There's one true enemy. And it's not our neighbors, no matter how they act. It is the devil himself. And so what this means is that the patient endurance that we're called, that we're called to is expressed at least in part by our patience toward and our forgiveness of others. You see, because... The children of the kingdom are not the reapers. The children of the kingdom are not the reapers. They're not the ones who are called to do the separating. It's the angels that are going to do that. That's the angels' job. They're the ones who will be gathering the weeds. The children of the kingdom's job is to live by faith in the king. Not even to kill the enemy or his seed. Here's what understanding a messy kingdom mixture can do. Knowing that there is a future glory when the children of the kingdom will shine forth like the sun, knowing that the person causing my offense or harm or suffering is not the ultimate enemy, knowing that from a kingdom perspective, justice delayed does not mean justice denied because the reason for the delay is that the king is still sowing good seed. The Lord uses these truths to give us the great grace and patience that we need to serve and to love even those who might stand against us while we wait patiently for the glory to come. Would you pray with me? We praise you, Jesus, because you are the king of the kingdom. Praise you, Jesus, because you are not only the king of the kingdom, you are our king. And you are with us always, even to the end of the age. And so, would you bless us, Lord, to live and to live with a sense of joy in, and patient endurance as we wait on future glory but strive for faithfulness to you in every endeavor that your name might be praised. Amen and amen. Well, Pastor Irwin has given us a lot to think about here. But faith in Jesus Christ requires faithful endurance or patient endurance uh, because we live in a messy kingdom mixture. Belief and unbelief. But... Our Savior is not surprised by it. Uh, he's ordained it. He is king over it. He is with us in it. And because 
he is a patient king because he is the one who endures and forbears because he is not willing that anyone would perish but all come to repentance. And so we have, there's time, time to reflect that grace. Uh, thank you so much for bringing us the word. Let's stand together as we celebrate uh, in that. And... Um,